Hills presents Intellivision. Intelligent television by Mattel. More sophisticated than any video game that has come before. Providing hours of entertainment for the entire family. Intellivision, with one of the clearest game displays available today. Find this system, plus a complete line of sports and video game cassettes at Hills, where our game is low prices every day. Welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill, this is episode 281. Thanks for listening. Intellivision Month 2021 rocks on. Yeah! I don't know what that was. I'll stop making that noise. We've got Sub Hunt on the, uh, on the menu today, as it were. I wish it was a sandwich. I'm kind of hungry. It's a problem with doing this right before lunch. But it's not. It's like a sub, as in, in the water. Sub. Dive, dive. Torpedoes and all that sort of crap. But we'll get into that in a few minutes. It's been an interesting weekend for me. Just got back from QuadCon Peoria yesterday. That was a lot of fun. Got to talk to a lot of people. It's nice to be in a different setting. Peoria, I've only been there, I don't even know, a couple of times, a few times. But I'm always surprised when I roll into town how much bigger it is than what I'm picturing in my head before I go to Peoria. So uh, it was lovely. I'm sure I'll be back. Don't have another QuadCon now until the end of July, I don't think. And I've got a two-day one. And then NerdFest, the end of August. Three days of comics and video games and artists and cosplayers and other pop culture nerdy stuff. It's a brand new event. They've never done it before. It's like I think they're boasting like 50,000 square feet of space. They seem to be striving for sort of the epic event like a Midwest gaming classic, but it's not just games. It's uh, it's all sorts of nerdy stuff, but I digress. It was an interesting weekend. So I did, nerd, uh, did QuadCon yesterday. The other reason it was interesting is Friday night, uh, the kid, Henry, was kind of complaining that his ankle hurt a little bit. He'd been playing at school and whatnot, and you know, he's just kind of complaining in general. Saturday, we get up and get ready to go to Peoria, and he's like, yeah, my ankle really hurts. And uh, we kind of get through the day, and, and he's still complaining, and it hurts to walk on it. He's not swelling or bruising or anything. It just, it, he says it hurts. So we decide, you know what, Saturday night, we're going to take him to the urgent care clinic, get him checked out, and they do an x-ray and sure enough the radiologist says there is a fracture in his ankle they had a big long name for it which i don't remember right now uh, radiologist pretty positive that's what it is the doctor who treated him saturday night was like well it could be uh, i'm not as convinced that it's an actual fracture uh, it's probably certainly a sprain it could be a fracture just to be safe uh, they put a boot on him so don't put any weight on it and we got an appointment right away uh, today's sunday we got an appointment tomorrow uh, with the orthopedist, 
I guess, to get the final word. So that's a drag. Henry's got crutches now and one of those little scooter things that we happen to have uh, from a couple years ago when Jill hurt her ankle. So he's, he's kind of bummed. I mean, he's 11. So, and he's big time ADHD on top of that. So tell an 11-year-old ADHD kid, you can't run around. And that's pretty much like the worst thing you could say. So he's kind of grumpy today. Why he's not on the show today. I had to have my backup camera person, uh, Sophie, fill in for the video, uh, for the field report. Spoiler, I already recorded the field report before I did the show. It's not live during the show. Hate to ruin it for you. But the worst part is, because Henry hurt his ankle, I have to mow the lawn. He loves to mow the lawn. He loves to get the weed whacker out and, and you know, do the edging. He loves all that crap. And he can't do it now, so I have to do it, uh, which is what I'll be doing after this recording. Maybe after I get my own sub sandwich, because like I said, I'm kind of hungry. So, because of that, let's get on with things. Uh, my tummy's not going to wait that much longer. Got an email from Sean. Hi, Sean. He writes, Another holiday, another backlog of podcasts, including Atari Bytes. Just heard your QuadCon episode. That would have been episode 279? Or was that last week? Let's see. This is episode 281. 280 was... What game did we play last week? Star Strike. So yeah, 279 was the QuadCon episode. Just heard your QuadCon, QuadCon episode. That convention actually does sound interesting. Uh, it is. Actually, Sean, it, the scope of the event varies, frankly, from venue to venue. Some of them occur in pretty small places, relatively, where it's really just vendors. The one I did in Cedar Rapids was just vendors, but it was a the first time being at this location. John, the guy who runs the QuadCon, was straight up saying, this is an experiment. We may expand things next time we're here. And some of the QuadCons, they do have... Uh, it's still they still mostly lean heavily toward vendors, but they also do have a varying number of guests, and they always have some sort of cosplay contest and all that. So, uh, yes, to your comment, it is an interesting event. Uh, it does sound interesting. I imagine the Quad Cities aren't too huge a hike from Chicago. Uh, no, it's not really. It's about uh, two and a half hours, I think. Uh, might be worth checking out. Heck, might even be worth having a podcast booth or something, assuming it's not bone-crushingly expensive. It is not. I think the most I've paid to get into a booth at a QuadCon is 50 bucks uh, for a day. Usually it's not even that much. It's uh, like 30 or 40 Anywhere from like 30 to 50 usually closer to 30 Sean says, that's one reason Jim and, uh, and Ari, uh, Jim uh, Drobel, his co-host on Pie Factory, aren't going to set up in the vendor area at Midwest Gaming. The cost of doing that uh, you know the cost of doing that. I do. Uh, it is pretty high. It's an awesome event, and it's worth going to, but yeah, it is expensive. You know the cost of doing that. We'd need an electrical drop, and that's even more buckage we have to fork over. Buckage, by the way, Sean, my new favorite word. From now on, Pi Factory will be going as customers. Also lets us all s also lets us all see what we want to see without feeling guilty about leaving someone alone at the table. That is one problem with being a vendor at any of these events is you're tied to your table. I do usually take help with me, meaning Henry and frequently my wife, and then I sneak out every once in a while to take a walk around the, uh, the vendor floor. But like at Midwest Gaming, I see very little beyond the vendor room, um, so I do miss a lot. Uh, that's true. Sean says, as for Atari and other retro stuff at these events, oh, believe me, there's plenty of Atari and other vintage goods at MGC. Yeah, you are correct. Um, and I'll talk about the QuadCon I was at yesterday in a minute. 
there's always a vendor with a bunch of arcade marquees. I think last time that vendor was near the PFP table and around the corner he had some pretty obscure marquees too, if I'm not mistaken, and all for reasonable prices. I should probably acknowledge here, Sean and everybody else, that my comments on the QuadCon episode about, well, gee, there's not much Atari stuff at these events. I, I still stand by that and everything else I said as far as is Atari too old to be pop culture, but I also acknowledge that my perspective is limited to the events I've been to and the limited time I ever have to look around. So another reason why I should probably at some point try to go to more events just as a person walking around and then I can look at whatever I want for as long as I want. Sean says, I don't remember, or hold on. Sean says, I definitely saw a lot of Atari merch, including games, consoles, and controllers. I don't remember if it was 2019 or 18, but one thing that stuck out was the, that Adventures price tag had a severely inflated price tag at almost every table. Hmm. Apparently they used Ready Player One as the excuse for that. Uh, good book, by the way. Patrat Video Games always had a room there. They specialize in homebrews for Atari 2600, Odyssey 2, and Vectrex. I usually buy something from them every MGC, including a 2600 title called Explosive Diarrhea. I can't wait to hear your episode about that. Yeah, you've mentioned Explosive Diarrhea on Pie Factory a number of times, and I do want to get to that eventually. Sean Kelly also usually has a space at MGC, and his store has something for just about every console you can think of. I got a good chunk of my since shrunken 7800 collection from his store. Hatch in 2018, I walked around looking for a Commodore 64, and I went home with a Commodore 64. So the stuff for people of our generation is definitely there. I remember that Mad Lib story you put together for your space, so it was really cool to hear the stories from QuadCon. Yeah, the first year. It was the second year. I was at Quad, uh, MGC. I did, uh, if you listened to the QuadCon episode a couple weeks ago, I recycled the Mad Libs uh, contest that I did at Midwest Gaming, where I gave away a t-shirt to uh, a random Mad Lib supplier based on, at Midwest Gaming I gave choices, uh, Pac-Man, Pitfall, or Space Invaders for the contest. A couple weeks ago I did uh, Pac-Man stories. Sean continues, I just learned... I just recently learned a bit about Mad Libs from another podcast. I didn't know this, but Mad Libs were invented by Leonard Stern, who was a writer for many TV shows, including The Honeymooners and Star Trek. In 1994, he published a book called A Martian Wouldn't Say That. My, my wife recommended it to me years ago, and yes, it's definitely some good reading. It's a collection of excerpts from memos to TV writers from studio executives offering uh, helpful suggestions, such as, can't we make the rabbi less Jewish? Very fun read, and I can't recommend it enough. Ooh, that sounds kind of up my alley. I'm going to check that out. Thanks for the recommendation. Sean concludes, I'm not good with proper endings, so bye. Works for me, Sean. Thanks for the email. I'm definitely going to check out that book. That sounds like uh, it's totally in my wheelhouse. I also got a note from Sean confirming something that Jason mentioned in the Jason Says Stuff segment. Sean wrote, My Jersey Shore native wife told me about TV Picks, P-I-X or P-X-X, whatever, I think that was actually a nationwide thing. I kind of remember Jason talking about this in his segment. I don't know if we, uh, if he said or if I was guessing that this might have been a regional thing, but Sean says his understanding that it may have actually been a nationwide thing. Other stations owned by the same company had TV POW, in which the caller would say POW into the phone, of course at the mercy of the reflexes of whoever was operating the controller. If I remember my previous research correctly, when this thing first started, they were using a Fairchild Channel F before switching to Intellivision. Thanks for that, Sean. I'm still not 
none of this is ringing any bells for me. This TV video game show thing. I probably should go look this up on YouTube, you know, being a thorough podcaster and all that. But, you know, it's always nice to have uh, stuff that people say on the podcast confirmed. So if nothing else, Sean, you have proved that Jason actually does know something. And I guess that's good for Jason. Thanks again, Sean. Jason of Jason Says Stuff commented on the Patreon on the most recent episode. Amazing, stupendous, and a nonstop thrill ride. Atari Bytes is obviously drawing from the energy of the biters and reflecting it back to them. Thank you, Jason. Speaking of which, we might as well turn now to the Statler and Waldorf to my Muppet Show. It's time for that segment again. Question! What does Jason say? He says stuff! What does Jason say? What's a stuff? What does Jason say? Or maybe a little stuff! What does Jason say? He says stuff! Dear Atari Bytes, Congratulations on yet another stupendous and soaring show. This one had it all. Attempts at comedy, jangling bug collars, a family cameo, and a video game. Even my segment felt like it was part of an amazing flow, and hearing so much feedback from so many fans demonstrates the growth this podcast has undergone. This is the second week in a row another listener has mentioned me, and it just felt like the biters are becoming something monolithic and perhaps a separate entity that you will have to appease and entertain. Don't despair. It is a beautiful thing that your show is becoming iconic, and your fans are now legion. My one complaint, and yes, that's part of my routine, is to call out a failure or misfire in the show, was that horrible doo-wop crapola that you defiled your story with, and then played a different piece of doo-wop crapola at the end. Oh, let me think. That was a long time ago, Jason. Are you referring to this crapola? Jason continues, I would assume you did it purposely because you may have felt our communication was too congenial. Why else would someone play the literal center of trash and depravity in such an epitomic place? Doo-wop is literally something even unfit for a dung beetle and could only be enjoyed by someone with some sort of inverse IQ and a love of audio flatulence. Here's the part where you go, do you mean music like this? No, no, I already did that, Jason. Try to keep up. And then you play a snippet of that crap and everyone collectively vomits their breakfast in utter disgust. Even New Zealand is not entertained by doo-wop. It's so bad that most people would prefer lifelong sinus infection or rectal itch to that utter garbage trying to pretend it's a musical style. Have you noticed that no one has written to you in support of doo-wop? Actually, it's not true. I believe Ferg over on the Twitter after the first time I uh, serenaded everyone with a doo-wop song. Uh, I think he actually did write to me in support of doo-wop, so take that. Jason says, in the previous episode, episode 279, I did appreciate the mention of Merlin, the handheld game, which came up when that gentleman posted his retro handhelds, but I also found fault in that since some of them were not exactly retro, such as the Nintendo Switch, which is very current and is presently for sale worldwide. When you mentioned Henry's Coleco football handheld, I think you meant the electronic quarterback, which was great. And even though I despise sports, I often played that machine till my thumbs became sore. And finally, when you mentioned the Simon clone, I was wondering if you had Fabulous Fred, a great Simon clone. I don't think so. It could have been. I really don't remember for sure. Did I mention that doo-wop is the greatest musical underachievement? 
and the obvious joke would be to do the Jason Says Stuff theme song in a doo-wop style. Oh man, don't tempt me. Feel free not to do that and maintain your high standards. I'm going to say medium standards, Jason. I don't want to I don't want to put too much pressure on myself. And as has become tradition, Jason has a story for us. This one is titled Submarine Tranquility. It had been an interesting career developing military submarines as a civilian for the civilian for the US Navy. Although it hasn't been a road to riches, it certainly has paid the bills. Divorce, addictions, depression, my kids won't speak to me. The world has gone on without me while I toil away towards some sort of perfection that eludes me. When I'm gone, no one will celebrate this effort. I doubt they will look at the submarine plans of Walter Kenneth Hudson and lament my passing. My latest effort is a single-person submarine that has enough firepower to blow a crater-sized hole into the side of a battleship while being almost undetectable by radar. I sometimes wish I had stayed the course towards becoming a doctor, or something else that actually saves lives instead of obsessing over how to most efficiently eliminate them. However, after 25 years of designing mechanical death dealers, it's a little too late to change now. The top brass had a test pilot who could fly, sail, or navigate any piece of new equipment, but this one was going to have its maiden voyage in my skillful yet destructive hands. Moments before the journey, my daughter called. She's going back to rehab, and joy of joys, she hates me, and it's all my fault. My mortgage is hopelessly behind, despite my high earning power, and my latest girlfriend left. Why? Because I have a drug and gambling problem? A really big drug and gambling problem? I'm wallowing. I get it. Moving on. The morning had arrived for the testing of the one-person submarine. I strap myself in and give the obligatory thumbs up to the brass who are watching this somewhat historic moment. I have submerged. I'm at least 700 feet below the surface, and the small submarine is maintaining a perfect performance. This moment felt so right. Something I touched hadn't been broken, hadn't been ruined by my poisonous touch. I looked through the porthole and the sea was so amazingly tranquil, I went from a moment of complete success and accomplishment to a moment of zen. The team began to become concerned. They radioed me over and over. Hudson, are you okay? Can we please get a response? I didn't feel like it. They were crashing into my moment. I disconnected the radio. I shut off the oxygen. I silenced all the alarms. My submarine, submarine tilted sideways as it headed to a crushing depth. I felt no pain. It was like falling asleep to the sound of a riverbank. This was the end. The spin doctors will give me a hero's write-up in the military gazette. Military submarine creator dies while testing a submarine. None of my problems will be mentioned. This was no accident and really wasn't a suicide. Just a weary man finding peace. I had paid the debt that cancels all others. Wow. That's kind of bleak there, Jason. Well done. I gotta admit, it's a bit more. Uh, there's a bit more heart in this one that I might have than I might have expected, but uh, but I like it. Uh, it's a good story. Jason concludes this segment, pointing out that there was actually a sequel. Uh, well, first he provides a link to the Parker Brothers Merlin 1979 commercial. I'm looking at the the photo here, not the actual video. Uh, there's a picture of the Merlin there. Man, that was a good looking handheld. It was one of those things that, you know, 1979, when I had it, when I was playing it, I knew that, I mean, this is pretty simplistic, but I also felt like this is pretty cool. It was one of those kind of toys. Jason notes that I definitely thought of the catchy commercial that made this thing seem incredible. Uh, Jason asked if I ever owned the sequel, uh, Merlin's Tenth Quest. Uh, I did not. I'm not even entirely sure what happened to my Merlin. 
I'm looking at a picture that you provided of the 10th quest. I gotta tell you, I think I like the original one better, at least the look of it. So that's cool. If anyone else had a Merlin, wants to talk about it, let us know. In the meantime... Question! What does Jason say? He says stuff! What does Jason say? What's a stuff? What does Jason say? Or maybe a little stuff! What does Jason say? He says stuff! Uh, I just realized I didn't finish my thought earlier about the uh, the Atari games I saw at the QuadCon I was just at. For the events I go to typically, there was actually a fair amount of Atari presence. It's not to say it was overwhelming, but there were at least two vendors that had cartridges. Just loose cartridges. I don't see much. I, for a while I was seeing a lot of in-box stuff, but I don't see much of that anymore. One of the places was a place that uh, a guy I see there a lot, and he had the usual little box with the, the standard titles you always see. The other place, they were selling tons and tons of cartridges for all sorts of consoles, uh, including at least a couple of boxes. Uh, one big box with just Atari games in it that was mostly the, the standards, and another box that had sort of a mixed bag of Atari and Coleco and Odyssey uh, cartridges, including like four different cartridges that I don't have that I don't usually see. Let's see, there was Ratchet Ball... Smurfs, Escape from Gargamel's Castle, Super Cobra, and I think there was another one that I don't have. I was really tempted to, to buy some of them, but the cheapest one of those was like five bucks, which maybe isn't bad in reality, but it's kind of a gamble to pay five bucks or more for a cartridge, a loose cartridge that you have no idea if it works or not. And I was feeling cheap. I'd already spent money on the kid. You know, paying to get in there, and I was paid for food and all that stuff. So I discouraged myself from buying them. Maybe I should have, or at least some of them. I, I don't know. But I did like that I was finally seeing some cartridges in the wild that I don't always see. So that was good. All right. Well, with that, let's get on to this week's game. This week's game is Sub Hunt for the Intellivision from Mattel, 1982. I got really frustrated with the manual for this one. It's one of those submarine games that tries to drop you into, in a way, an actual submarine and give you really technical specs of things you need to do when really all you want to do is get the bad guy in your scope and shoot a torpedo at it. So I got kind of annoyed and a little bit bored with the instructions for this, which probably is, is clear from the field report when you listen to that. So I, I will try to slog through this as best I can. It's a one-player game. The object of the game is you're controlling four submarines, one at a time. You have six convoys of targets crossing the open sea. Navigate them, sight the ships through your periscope, fire your ready torpedoes. Take evasive action to escape hits from deck guns and depth charges. Sink the ships before they can reach a safe harbor and form an almost unstoppable invasion force to attack your home base. The top side buttons on the controller fire your torpedoes. The bottom side buttons reverse your engines. The disc controller, your runner, your, your rudder, actually, there's a misprint in this copy of the manual. Uh, the left side of the disc makes you go to port. The right side to starboard. The keypad numbers 1 through 5 set your skill level anywhere from stop engines to engines full. On the keypad, number 5 is your return key. 6 is to dive. 7 is to surface. 8 is your sonar on and off. The clear button selects your submarine. The zero button stops at sea all of your subs. And the enter button stops at C, the active sub, the one you're actually using right now. If you press the reset, 
you see the sub hunt title screen. You set your skill level. Easiest is the lieutenant's level, then the lieutenant commander, commander, captain, and admiral, which is the hardest, obviously. Phase one of the game has you deploying your submarines. When you select the skill level, the ocean map appears at the top of the screen. North is the enemy's staging harbor. To the right, or east, is your home base. Just to the left of your base are your four submarines. On the far left, the west, of the screen is the convoy location. In a few seconds, the first of six enemy convoys appear at the west edge of the ocean map, heading east. Press the clear button, or the select button, to activate a sub. Touch the left side of the disc to start it moving toward the convoy. Then send out your remaining subs. Press the select, or clear button, to turn a vessel dark, then deploy it toward the area between the convoy and its staging harbor destination. All the subs stop when the first battle begins. Select the sub nearest the convoy, guide it by touching the disc edge, press the top to go north, bottom to head south, etc. Intercept the gray sub figure as fast as you can. When you contact the enemy, both ships start flashing and it is time to start. Phase 2 has you at general quarters. The screen now shows the situation on your sonar map. You are still east of the approaching convoy. Your depth gauge, marked D, shows in 20-foot increments. At far left, fully submerged. At far right, fully surfaced. The rudder, R, shows the rudder position relative to the present heading. At the far left, head to port, hard to port. At the far right, hard to starboard. Speed, or S, on your screen, shows current sub speed. At far left, sub is in reverse. At far right, full speed ahead. Torpedo display shows current status. Green means armed, ready to fire. Red means torpedo, tub, not yet loaded. You must select an engine speed to start moving toward your targets. At long range, press full to move at full speed. When you close in and during your attack, you should proceed at a slower speed. When you touch an engine room telegraph symbol, 1 to 5 on the keypad, you start to move at that speed. To go into reverse, keep pressing either lower action button to resume forward speed, release the button. This is the point where earlier I started to get really, really bored. I was bored to begin with, and now by this point I was really bored. Surface speed is about 25% faster than submerged speed. Your rudder is more responsive at every higher speed. When you are stopped, the rudder does not change the sub's direction at all. They provide you with some attack strategy. Basically, as you approach the, uh, the enemy, submerge to periscope level at this point, pressing dive one time. Every time you press this key, you dive 20 feet deeper. The sky color darkens slightly when you go from surface to periscope depth. There's some jazz in here about destroyer formations. If you're sighted, the escort ship leaves the convoy and chases you, firing its deck guns if you are surfaced and dropping depth charges if you are submerged. The destroyer tends to stay behind you and you cannot outrun it. Try to torpedo the destroyer as it approaches you. If you miss, dive as deep as you can. Stop the engines, turn off the sonar because either of them give away your position. Which is the only part of every submarine movie ever that was interesting, but I digress. After a while, the destroyer may give up the hunt and return to escort position. You cannot use the return to escape when you're in close range battle position. You must be far enough away from the convoy so that your sub is flashing at the fast long range rate. When you're near the convoy, you can see the ships through the periscope. You also see their position on the sonar map. With some practice, you can relate these sonar blips to the periscope images so you can maneuver to attack each sub in turn. When either of the torpedo symbols is green, you can fire one torpedo. It takes a few seconds to reload. To fire a torpedo, you press either top action button and your maximum range is about halfway to the horizon seen through the periscope. You must be on the surface or at periscope level to fire torpedoes. If you sink 36 ships, you win the game. The count of sinkings is shown at the left of the periscope view. 
When you win, you get a spirited victory salute. You're a naval hero. You can also win by sinking so many enemy ships that they cannot form an invasion force to attack you. The convoy's primary destination is the staging harbor. Although you can't see them, three destroyers are waiting there. As soon as enough surviving ships arrive, an invasion fleet forms consisting of three destroyers and three troop ships. If there are not enough convoy ships arriving to make up this invasion force, they will just be held in the harbor until enough survivors get past your subs. The invasion fleet appears as a dark shape, then moves out of the staging harbor, heading for your home base. You must all the, sink all the ships in this fleet before they arrive at your home base. It will be very hard to sink three destroyers, but this is your last chance to avoid defeat. If the invasion force reaches your home base, the land mass changes color and the game is over. Um, there's some strategy stuff in the manual, which I encourage you to look at. Not that it helped me, but it might help you. And that is how you play Sub Hunt from Mattel, 1982. I'm not rich or famous. I'm not a movie star, rock icon, first responder, nurse, doctor, or anybody else whom we all look up to. I'm just a schnook. Just like Bill, I love to tell stories. Unlike Bill, though, I'm not creative enough to write my own, so I just tell my own real-life stories in this book-read-by-the-author-style podcast. All about life lessons, growing up, and every episode, a segment about music. Music that I love, artists that I admire, and sometimes even my own music. You can find Autobiography of a Schnook on all your favorite podcast suppliers, or you can go to schnookpodcast.com. That's S-C-H-N-O-O-K podcast.com. And I firmly believe the good goes around, and I sincerely hope that Autobiography of a Schnook proves to be some good that goes around your way. The game was designed by Tom Loffrey, released on May 6th, 1982. It was re-released as part of the Intellivision Lives collection for computers and other video game consoles, including PlayStation 2 and Nintendo GameCube. The game was also released on Microsoft's Game Room service. NTV Funhouse called the game a pretty solid submarine game. If you win, you are handsomely rewarded with the Flight of the Valkyries, a beautifully rendered piece using the three-part harmony capabilities of the sound chip quite well. If you check out the NTV Funhouse piece, you also get some interesting uh, deep dive, pun intended, of the different box variants and manual variants, and overlay variants. Uh, so if you're into that sort of thing, you can check it out. There is also an Easter egg, in TV Funhouse tells us, on the title screen. Joe Zipsiak's post to the NTV Prog group on Yahoo on March 23, 2001, revealed this. On the right controller, press and hold clear, zero, enter, and disk location WNW, position 7. Press the reset, and the title screen shakes, and the crowd cheers until all the letters and color bars fall off the screen. To download an, MP, an MPEG-1 movie of this Easter egg, check, click on the image. So go to the article if you want to do that. Retrogamer.net says that it is a simple game that can be fun for a while. Okay, I don't know what you're smoking, but all right. The graphics and sound are okay for their age. Playing with the original dial controllers can be just as awkward as playing the game these days on the PlayStation 2 collection and television lives. This was probably the first submarine simulator, so not a bad effort. The video game critic gave the game a C-. The average vote by the uh, readers of the uh, blog gave it a B. To properly play Sub Hunt, you'll need both the instructions and keypad overlay. I absolutely agree. The game is super complicated. 
The game gets fun once they begin destroying ships, watching them sink into the depths while leaving behind a plume of smoke is satisfying. Taking out the destroyer is apparently key to victory, but I could never zero in on that bad boy. There were times I was taking hits like crazy but could not locate my attacker. I feel you, reviewer. Subhunt is a complex, realistic simulation that requires patience and experimentation. Which I do not possess in abundance, frankly. I don't think it's a bad game. I do. It just requires a higher level of commitment than I could muster. Alright, speaking of unattainable levels of commitment, after the break, prepare for a sub-par sub-hunt. That's just the way it is sometimes. kid, I think it was, was it Captain Kangaroo that had the Captain Nemo cartoons on it? Or, and then later there was Hunt for Red October, which is a really good movie. Other than those two things, I can't remember ever enjoying anything that involved submarines. So, with that in mind, let's play Sub Hunt. There's the screen, Sub Hunt, so you know I'm not lying to you. Here we go, I guess. Alright, uh, I am selecting, this is a super, can you see that? See what? What's on the screen? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is a super complicated overlay. I have selected a submarine, I have told it to the rudder to rud things. I'm selecting this one. And then I'm telling this one to go this way, I guess. And I'll send this one this way, up the top. I guess you have what you're seeing through the periscope, which is the part that really messes me up. Because I can't ever see anything through the periscope. Hey, I sailed right past the bad guy, I guess. Send this guy back. There was some jangling bug collar for Jason. There you go, Jason. He's supposed to be going full speed now, the purple one. Alright, maybe I'll switch to this guy. Oh, the bad guys, who I assume because it's 1981, are the Russians, uh, just invaded. That was quick. Uh, let's try this again. him out, send that guy that way, this guy this way, sure, why not, and send that guy that way. But where is the bad guy? Oh, there he is. Alright, put engines on full. I'm going to attack this guy, I guess. Alright, here we go. Now this is the part that messes me up. I can't tell where I'm shooting. I know it's going straight up, but this is me, and this is the bad guy. I can't figure out how to make you shoot the bad guy. I tried. It doesn't make any sense. It just says, you'll see it on screen. And if you don't, reverse your engines. Which I did, which I'm doing right. Hey, there he is. I did that 
that before. It didn't do anything. Alright. Let's try that again. Oh. Oh, crap. somewhere. Hey, quit shooting at me. Uh-oh. Oh man, I gotta reload my torpedoes. There we go. Oops. Hey, where'd he go? Come back. Get out of this. And it's at this point, at this point, uh oh. No, that's just the uh, sound of the ocean. Alright, back to this. This game moves really slow. The action was kind of fun for about 30 seconds, and then I got bored with that, and he's about to invade Greenland, or something. Come here. Alright. Well, the game pretty much goes on like this. You've already seen me lose once, uh, and I'm tired of this, so back to you in the studio. Hey everyone, this is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Car by Car podcast. Do you like Atari? Of course you do. What about the 8-bit computer line? It was one of the best. Well, how about you consider joining Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review the cartridge-based games for Atari's 8-bit computer line. We also review budget games which are mostly released only in the UK. But that's not all. We also dig up game history, share personal experiences, and perform questionable comedy. You'll get all of that and for free just by listening to us on either iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's X-E-G-S, the number 8, bit.com. And when you're done listening, please send us your hate mail because we really need the feedback so we know someone is tuning in. Hey, let's take a break from you listening to me talk so that you can listen to me talk. Hell's Serial, Very Short Stories Fortified with Essential Syllables is the new short story collection from, well, me. Every box, or book, is chock full of bite-sized stories in every genre from sci-fi to fantasy to literary fiction to cheesy spy stories and everything in between. Zombies in Love, Twisted Car Races, and the aforementioned Devilish Breakfast Food are just some of the tasty bites you'll find. Toy surprises? You bet. How about social commentary and the meaning of life? Beats a decoder ring any day. With both funny stuff and drama, Hell's Cereal gives you the marshmallows and the toasted oat flakes. Oh, and words. Lots of those, too. Pick up Hell's Cereal, very short stories fortified with essential syllables, wherever you like to get your books. Not cereal. So, here's the thing about Subhunt. 
if you're really into this sort of submarine game where you have to watch all the dials and you have to move really slowly into position and stage everything and then you fire and then you reverse and then you dive and you do this crap if you're into that sort of thing you probably really get into this game uh, if you want to sit there for hours and figure out how to do that if you just want to pick up a game and look through your periscope and fire torpedoes at the enemy and watch them blow up this is not the game for you and that's what i wanted so it's not the game for me going to stop short of saying that's an awful game it's not porkies but it is a, a, a for me not a fun game i kind of enjoyed for about 25 seconds when i could actually see the enemy in my periscope and i could actually fire them and see that things were exploding and there was some back and forth and that was kind of fun but otherwise it was just a boring slog for me so uh you guys want to try and convince me otherwise or if you want to point me to an Atari or Intellivision submarine game that I might like better, uh, I'm open to it. So, let me know. It's story time on Atari Bytes. Yes, it's story, 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 story time. With Bill. This week's story comes to us from Bad Poetry Corner, and it is titled Floaters and Sinkers. The storms pitch vessel to and fro. The dark cylinder submerges. Rides out the storm, back up surges. From port ejected, should now go. Smell of fear and worse ripples, flows. Attack. You send depth charge. Make sink. Tsunami erupts. Now you think. Win at hand. But waters don't crest. Toilet bowl purge. Brown shadows rest. On carpet, submariner stinks. Hi, this is 8-Bit Rocket, Jeff Fulton, from the Into the Vertical Blank Generation Atari podcast. And you are listening to the incomparable William Pepper and his wonderful stories of the game within a game on the Atari Bytes podcast. When you are done here, come visit us in the Vertical Blank. Now, back to Bill. And that's our show. Thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Creative Commons use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. Thanks to Sean Tortney for the Storytime theme and the Jason Says Stuff theme. Launch a five-star review torpedo on Apple Podcasts. Email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on our Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at ataribytes or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. Also, look us up on Instagram. Feel free to call me too. I'm never going to answer the phone, but it's nothing personal. You are, however, free to leave a voicemail at 563-265-1978. I will eagerly await your message, and no matter what it is, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to play it on the show. Check out the website, www.carnivalofgleecreations.com. You're going to find all sorts of crap over there. Links and info for this show, social media, stuff about my other podcast, it's a podcast, Charlie Brown, information about other projects that I've done, including books that I've written and are for sale. No way. You can... Get my words without having to listen to my stupid voice. Yes, that is an option you have. And you can find out 
some of the places, some of the many places that you can order those books. Uh, so please consider doing that. Thank you in advance. Carnivalofgleecreations.com. Please also consider supporting the show, uh, helping to keep the lights on here in the podcast studio by subscribing over there at the Patreon. Atari Bytes has a page on patreon.com, link in the show notes, and you can help me out. You can also hang out with these fine folks. Michael Tyler, Jose Gazeta, Sean Courtney, M. West, Patrick McCarthy, Patrick, I always stumble on that one, Patrick McCarthy, Jeremy L., and Jason Schiffman. Thank you, one and all. All right, that's about it for this week. All that's left is to tell you next time on Atari Bytes. Intellivision Month rolls on. This time we're playing Night Stalker, which I think was a creepy made-for-TV movie. I'm probably totally wrong about that. But somehow that's turned into an Intellivision game. I don't know. Clearly I haven't done any research yet. But I will, maybe, before the next episode. So join us, won't you? So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you. Thank you.